Well, if you're here for the first time or first few times, we welcome you into uh, the rhythm of uh, worship in the life of our church. My name's Tom. I'm one of the elders here at Bridges, and I welcome you uh, this morning. I'm uh, preaching in Cliffstead. He's here today. He won't be last uh, next week, but glad to uh, give him uh, some respite from the, the weekly uh, task and privilege of, of uh, preparing uh, sermons and bringing the word. This last week, I had the opportunity to uh, do something or see something that I'd never really seen that much before, and it's, uh, it had to do with uh, bi- amateur bike racing. So I had the opportunity to watch a son, the son of one of my uh, Denise and I's friends from college compete in a national amateur cycling championship. And he, uh, he ended up, this guy is an amazing guy, 22 years old. Uh, he goes to college for two thirds of the year, and then he takes off and he races nationally. And he won the road race uh, on this day, a 90-mile road race against competitors around the country. It was the U.S. National Championship. I didn't see that, but I got to see him in a, in a uh, what they call a criterium. I don't know if any of you have heard of this. It's a, it's a small uh, uh, course in Redlands. They often have a yearly bike race over there. That's uh, where I've, I've been exposed to once before, and they race around town. And so where I was at, they were racing around a downtown area on a, on a set of four streets in a square. Imagine a bunch of about 100 bicyclists uh, racing together in a pack about this far apart, going about 30 miles an hour or 25 miles an hour. And they are jamming in packs and they have accidents. So I, I didn't get to see one. My friend that was with me saw an earlier race where there was an accident. But one of the things I saw there, I had never uh, known existed. So I asked my friend, what's that on the front of these guys' bikes? So they have these weird handlebars that they lean like this. And, but there's this little thing that their finger goes in. And uh, he goes, oh, that's, uh, that measures, uh, they put their finger in there and they can measure their body functions. And I go, are you serious? He says, yeah, they put it in and there's a little digital thing on their bike and it registers heart rate, pulse, and um, I don't know, what else you'd want to know if you were about ready to explode your body. So, and that's the words my friend used. I said, well, why do they have that? And he goes, so they don't explode their body. He says, uh, your body tells you things, but that's extra data in addition to how they're feeling that gives them a clue about when they're reaching like the red zone for their body because they're just going. And uh, he said the body's under tremendous pressure, and it's another set of data points in addition to how they feel that allows them to choose how to, whether to go forward or whether to back off and what to do in terms of their strategy in the middle of this race. And I was like, I'd never heard of such a thing. And uh, he said, yeah, it's the new, the new thing in uh, competitive cycling is to have a little bit more data in the middle of the race so you can choose your strategy. Well, I share that with you because this morning we're going to talk about what happens when our faith gets under pressure. Not our body from biking, but our faith gets under pressure. And how do we make choices that uh, uh, allow us to, to, to not have our body or our faith uh, blow up, but allow us to choose uh, well and to live in light of God who leads and governs our lives. The way we're going to get into this topic today is in Genesis 20. So I'm following along where Cliff's been preaching in Genesis. And the passage in Genesis 20 will have overtones to Genesis 12. So if you were here in February, Cliff preached on Genesis 12. In fact, I told my, my wife, Denise, I said, I told her about the passage I was preaching on. And she goes, dude, Cliff already preached on it. What are you doing? And I go, no, no, he didn't preach. She said, yes, he did. I have the notes. He preached on that. What are you doing? And I wasn't. I, I said, no, he, he didn't preach on it. Well, I wasn't here, actually, in February when Cliff preached on it. Uh, but my wife remembered well. So, Cliff, that's a testament to you. She knew that you had preached on the past. She remembered it. She had notes still in her Bible. She handed them to me. So uh, it will have overtones to Genesis 12. So well, I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to dive in and see what it has to tell us about how we live when our faith is under pressure. Here's Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, 
She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, and he said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, wilt thou slay an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She's my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants, and he told him, rather told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking of that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she's indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land's before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is your vindication in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are righted. Then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Such is the reading of God's word from Genesis 20. So in Genesis 20, we do pick up uh, where, uh, uh, where God has, has called, uh, called Abraham to go. So at the beginning of the, the very first verse of this passage, we see uh, the, the, the writer saying, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev. He sojourned in Gerar. So what we see Abraham simply continuing this path, this journey that Cliff helped to see began in Genesis 12 when the Lord said to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so here we see see Abraham, he's following through in obedience to this call. What I want to do first is I want to just set up some of the the context for this story and then uh, talk a little bit about what happened for Abraham in terms of the choices he made and the pressures that he was under. First of all, Abraham was given a promise. So in Genesis 12, this promise was given to him. And he's still journeying right now as an alien in foreign lands in response to the promise from Genesis 12. The whole story is kind of launched out of Genesis 12. God said, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make you famous. You will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham, a wandering shepherd, gets this call from God. He hears the call and he responds. He goes. And that's what we see in Genesis 12. It's a risky and vulnerable step for Abraham. So in the, in the ancient Near East, family, land, and inheritance were of supreme value. So when he chose to go, he risked all those things. Land was the livelihood Descendants represented the future, and children or inheritance represented the provision for parents in their old age. His decision in Genesis 12 to respond to God's call and to go was to put himself uh, at some risk or peril in obedience. He forfeited the security that he would have had if he had stayed with his family and his kindred. He was putting his own survival, identity, future security, in a sense, on the line in response to God's call. Abraham has a promise. He's following through in response to the call that God would bless him and make him a great nation. Secondly, 
as we continue looking sort of forward in this, this uh, journey that Abraham's on, if we were to take time to walk back over what Cliff's already spoke to us about and look at Genesis 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, what we would see is the writer is expanding on the promise. So each time the narrative writer in Genesis starts to talk about this promise, he adds a little bit more. And so we see this promise in Genesis 12 expanding through the chapters that Cliff's already preached, to, preached about. In Genesis 15, uh, here's what the writer says. Actually, let me give you an image about, that I had about what, what's happening in these chapters. We have this little promise uh, that God's given to Abraham about to go, I'll bless you and make, a, make nations from you. And it's as, if, it's as if in the following chapters there's a megaphone. So God has spoken through the, the front end of the megaphone like this. And the remaining chapters, is, is the megaphone is amplifying that promise. And it's as if chapters 13 and 14, 17, 15, the promise is being amplified and expanded as, as if a voice is speaking through a megaphone. And so we see things like God saying, don't be afraid, Abraham, in chapter 15, verse 1, I'm your shield. Your reward's going to be very great. He says this, no one but someone from your own body shall be your heir. You'll look toward heaven and count the stars. Do so. If you can count them, so shall your descendants be. Abraham believed, it says, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then God does this pyrotechnic vision thing and chapter 15, where he, see, he, he takes these animals and has them killed, divided in half, put like down the aisle here, and then there's this ceremony where a, a smoking pot and a flaming torch is walked between them. And it's actually something in the ancient Near East that would symbolize a, a strengthening of a promise or a covenant. In chapter 17, this promise is expanded more, and it's getting deeper and deeper within Abraham that God's called him to something very significant. He says, I'll make my covenant between you and you will be, and me, and you'll be exceedingly numerous. You'll be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. And it's in chapter 17 where God seals that expanded promise with the covenant of uh, the, prom, the, the symbol of circumcision. It goes forward. What I want to emphasize by just sort of recounting some of this is that this promise to Abraham on this, this journey is deepening within him. Each encounter with God there's more explanation, there's more description, and God is giving him a stronger and stronger picture of what it is that he wants to do inside and through Abraham for the nations. Well, as we get to chapter 20, the promise is unrealized. It's actually been about 25 years since God gave Abraham the promise. He has no land, and he has no progeny. He has no kids. And yet the promise from 25 years back was that he would bear children and a multitude of nations would come from him and that he would be given land. 25 years later, even as God has amplified and described in expanded ways what this would look like, before Abraham, there's nothing to give evidence of God working in that way. He's 99, his wife is 89. The promise of a child has been given that in the next year uh, they would have a child. And if we recall some of how Cliff's uh, preaching, we remember uh, Abraham and Sarah laughing. That was their response to that expanded promise and that description that in the next year they would have kids. So there's a tension and an expectation in the narrative as we approach chapter 20 that is there. Promises given, promises unrealized. Well, if we come to chapter 20, I want to suggest that the promise that was given to Abraham that he's carrying in his heart from the living God, it's getting threatened. The promise is threatened. So the promise which had expanded in the previous chapters is now jeopardized in chapter 20 because King Abimelech comes and takes Abraham's wife, Sarah, into his own royal household to be a part, presumably, of his harem. So you can understand how that might be perceived as threatening the, uh, the, the fulfillment of a promise that Abraham and Sarah would give birth to a son. Uh, and the Lord actually, in his expanded description, had already told them it would be a son, his name would be Isaac. But now, that promise is threatened. In verse 2 of the passage uh, in chapter 20, it says this, Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. 
the tension at this point, we're reading this whole narrative, has just gone up a notch. Promise has not only been long time in coming, it's now threatened. Let me unpack two important aspects sort of in the cultural background of what's going on here that will help us understand Abraham's response. Number one, Abraham said of Sarah, uh, his wife, she's my sister. There's actually truth to that. And he explains that in the passage. He says that the do- she is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Lest we think this is some illicit situation, this is actually normative in the ancient Near East. Most marriages in the ancient Near East were between blood relatives. That is the kind of marriage that happened in the ancient world. It took related clans and it strengthened the relational ties between them. Marriage was about alliance, about power, about resources. And when two parties or two families had a marriage, it strengthened this relationship between them. And most marriage partners in the ancient Near East came from the same, they came from the same village. There's no incest sort of taboo in marriage in the ancient Near East. Um, it's only later with the Levitical law that we see in Exodus and Deuteronomy that there's actually uh, some uh, prohibitions against, uh, against this type of thing. So for now, he's doing what's normative in the ancient Near East. That he had married someone that was connected in a into his family line already. So that's one piece of cultural background that we should, we should hold on to. And then the second is this. King Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. In the passage, he seems all innocent about what he's done. But in fact, he's gone and taken a man's, a man's wife uh, or taken a woman to be part of his harem. So in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon for a local authority, a foreign king to take women from traveling bands of sojourners and to take them into his royal household. Taking a woman to be part of one's harem was not viewed as shameful. Um, What was shameful was for a man to be discovered sleeping with another man's wife. And that's what we see in this passage. Abimelech in in verse 9 says, to Abraham, what have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? And that phrase, a great sin, symbolizes or has reference to adultery. You have brought on me this great sin of adultery. You've done to me things that ought not to be done. What were you thinking? I, and so we see that what, what Abimelech's bummed about and completely uh, confused by and upset about is that there was a married woman in his harem. That would be completely abhorrent and unacceptable. And in fact, in Babylonian codes of the ancient Near East, sort of outside of what God's doing with Abraham, even in Babylonian moral codes of the time, you can, we can read today, we can go look at these, these codes, and we can see that to sleep with another man's wife was punishable by death. So King Abimelech knows that's, that's very bad. And so he doesn't want... Uh, to be found having done that. Uh, but discovering that, uh, uh, so discovering that a member of one's harem was another man's wife was very shameful and was punishable by death. So those are two pieces of cultural background that we bring into chapter 20 to try, we try to understand what is going on with Abraham's choices. So let's look at Abraham's strategy. Chad mentioned earlier that when his faith in life is under pressure, he turns to strategy. He makes choices and decisions. We're going to look now at what was Abraham's strategy. A a vulnerable wanderer who was unprotected and faced the threat of of foreign kings taking his wife from his traveling band and uh, taking her into his household. Abraham's strategy was formed right after he heard the call of God to leave Haran in chapter 12. The question is, what was he going to do as this vulnerable sojourner when he was confronted by these foreign kings who wanted to take Sarah, his wife, into the royal household? He had probably two choices. Number one, he could tell the truth. He could say, Sarah is my wife. By doing so, he would risk death and he would jeopardize the fulfillment of the promise that he'd be the father of many nations. That would be one choice that he could have made. Or he could lie. He could be cunning. 
He could say, my wife, Sarah, actually is my sister. And this would not have been uncommon for someone to do in this time. Hoping to buy time to either escape or to negotiate with the foreign king who wanted to take her into the royal household. Now, that strategy had some downsides as well. (laughs) The strategy still might jeopardize the promise because his wife has now been taken. She might become pregnant by the foreign king, uh, and it would bring shame on that king's household. So his strategy is he's faced with two kind of choices. And in verse 13, uh, we see this. If you look at verse 13, Abraham did what his ancient Middle Eastern instincts told him to do. He relied on his own strategy, uninformed by his relationship with Yahweh at this point. And he did what his ancient Middle Eastern instincts said. Verse 13 says, When God caused me to wander from my father's house, from the get-go in chapter 12, when he heard the call, I said to Sarah, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place where we come, say of me, He is my brother. So when he left Haran to fulfill God's call, he had developed on his own an overarching strategy or policy that he was going to bring into his uh, relating with foreign kings who might want to take his wife to be part of their royal household. It was a strategy that he decided that he would apply at every place that they went with every foreign king that he encountered. He was vulnerable. He was under pressure. He was afraid. And so he followed his human instincts. He turned to his cultural and human default setting to figure out what he was going to do in the face of the pressure and the vulnerability and the fear that he was bringing into the journey that God had called him on to. He used the strategy in Genesis 12 where the strategy, both, where the strategy fails and Sarah is taken into Pharaoh's household. That's where Cliff preached in February. He used the strategy. It didn't really work that well because Pharaoh took his wife anyway into his own household. He may well have used the strategy in the 25 years that have transpired since that day in Genesis 20 and actually found that strategy to be effective, where he could have escaped a foreign king or where he could have uh, negotiated away the king's uh, desire to have his wife. It's an argument from silence. We don't know. But he very well may have done that because it was obviously a strategy that he was set to employ from day one In over 25 years, he probably encountered lots of kings that wanted to take things that he had, including his wife. Well, here in Genesis 20, he uses the strategy again. And actually, once again, it doesn't work out that well for him. His wife gets taken and into Abimelech's household. So in both situations that are recorded in Genesis, he uses the same strategy. He uses it with Pharaoh. He uses it with King Abimelech. The grace for Abraham was that God actually intervened in both situations. With the Pharaoh, God intervened with some um, stuff, bad stuff that happened to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh gave back his wife and said, get out of here. Your God's causing these bad things to happen to me. Take her and leave. And here in in Genesis 20, we find that he's rewarded by King Abimelech. So King Abimelech, he is given, God comes to him in a dream and says, You have a man's wife in your harem. She's actually not his sister. And so Abimelech, in order to write his name and to vindicate what he has done and vindicate uh, Sarah, he says, I want you to leave. You may have this land. I'm going to give you slaves. I'm going to give you uh, oxen. And I'm going to give you a thousand pieces of silver, which in that time would have represented uh, multiple years of a uh, laborer's salary. So God's grace, Abraham actually gets off pretty well. Not only does he get his wife back, he actually is rewarded for his choice. The issue that I want us to look at is that under pressure, whether we want to say Abraham's choices were right or wrong, and some commentators want to call it sinful, I'm not prepared to do that because I think he's acting on his best cultural instincts that he knows about what to do. But what he doesn't do is he doesn't turn to a third way which would have been to turn to Yahweh. He relies on his human cultural instincts. Not unlike you or I, I think, when threatened or under pressure, as even Chad referenced this morning for his own life. What we don't have in the text is a record of Abraham calling upon God to form his own strategy. What we have is a record of him turning to his own instincts and choosing a strategy that he thought was best of his own manufacturing and of his own 
his own, uh, his own mind. We don't see him turning to God. And so the question that I want us to bring to today and to explore a little bit more is, what happens to you in the midst of pressure? What happens to you in the midst of fear? What is your default setting? Where do you turn? Abraham turned to his own cultural instincts. Where do you turn? Last April, my dad uh, entered into the hospital with pneumonia. We were driving back, Denise and I and Matthew, from uh, a day uh, uh, at UCLA where Matthew uh, was at an admitted student's uh, preview day. And we were driving on the freeway. I remember exactly where we were at when I got the news. We were driving right by Staples Center. And I called my mom to check in with them and my dad to say hi. And my mom says, your dad's in the hospital. We admitted him on Friday night. So immediately I felt this sort of punch in my, in my stomach and in my gut. My dad had had heart surgery two years ago. He'd been doing well. Uh, and this was just out of the blue. She said, yeah, he wasn't feeling that good on Friday night. And so um, we kind of let the evening go. And then finally he, I could tell he was just not doing well. And I asked him, did he want to go to the hospital? And she said, finally, I just made the decision to call the paramedics. And so they took him to the hospital and admitted him with, uh, with pneumonia. So little did I know at that point that it would be uh, 60 days before he returned home. So uh, we returned to our house, and then on Monday morning, I got in the car and I drove up to be with my mom in Apple Valley, an hour north of here, near Victorville, where my parents live. Um, my instincts kicked in. Go, be present, be responsible, support, figure out a game plan. So I traveled there. We saw him on Monday, and then on Tuesday morning, we got a call from the hospital. Your dad's not doing well. His signs are all sliding downward. Within a few hours, we're moving him to the ICU. Okay, things are getting worse. I felt that kick in the stomach again. I said, okay, we'll figure out a plan. We'll go to the hospital. So we got to the hospital within a few minutes of him being taken to ICU. At that point, I realized uh, not only was he going to ICU, but they're going to need to intubate him and basically sedate him into a medically induced coma because his signs and all of the things that they were measuring had slid so far down that the rest of his system in his body was being threatened, his heart capacity and so forth. And they needed, they needed to put him in a medically induced coma in order to protect his body, in a sense, from exploding. So at that point, I realized, wow, this is actually very serious. The next day, the, my, my parents' family doctor came and sat quietly with my mom and I in the hall outside of ICU, and he talked to us about what kind of papers we would need to sign in the, in the event of my father's, um, all of his vital signs collapsing, which he said is a possibility. He said, your father's very sick. Uh, and so we walked to a counter, and we took, he took out a piece of paper. My parents had thought about these things, but it was a little surreal to stand there with him and look at the checkboxes about resuscitation, about uh, a whole set of interventions that they could take. And the doctor's asking, if he slides further, what, what choices do you want to make, have us make, and what choices do you not want us to make? Because these will be the orders that the staff on hand at the moment when things slide into crisis that they'll use to determine their, their interventions. So at that point, um, I was like, wow, we're really, we're really at this point. I just was driving home from preview day at UCLA with my son four days ago, and now I'm standing in a darkened corridor with my mom and a doctor talking about the possibility of my dad's passing. Um, my default settings at that point for reacting to pressure and to fear were for worry, anxiety, for brooding, and most of all, for withdrawing. I was present physically, but everything in me wanted to retreat emotionally. My default settings were to disengage. I was trying to be responsible, but everything in me wanted to disengage emotionally. I felt out of control. I felt dependent. I felt very uncomfortable in the medical setting as well as seeing my father completely unresponsive with a million tubes coming out of his body, as probably any of us would be with a loved one. I felt afraid. My default setting was to do something, but there wasn't anything that I could do. My default setting was to create a plan, 
I saw that I was emotionally shutting down. I sought distractions, looking at my phone, getting home in the evenings, you know, watching TV, reading, looking at the internet. My default settings were not being particularly shaped by God at that point or being shaped by God in the moment. Under pressure, most of us instinctively turn to some default, internally and in terms of our strategy. Abraham did. He turned to a default setting in the midst of the pressures that he faced. It's a response to pain and feeling threatened. And our human instincts is to do something. Something shaped by who we are, by our temperament, and by the way that culture has shaped us and told us what's appropriate. It's built into us by our temperament and our culture. For some of us, it's to move to over-controlling and to get highly engaged at controlling every detail because everything else is out of control. For some of us, it's for over-planning. For some, our default is to avoid. For some, our default is to shut down. For some, to become impatient or to become antagonistic. Our American culture shapes our instincts in the midst of pressure as well. Our American culture says, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Be independent. Take care of the problem. Strategize a solution. Come up with an innovative plan to take care of this situation and create a pathway towards resolution. Be independent. Did you know the Bible talks about our default settings as well when we're under pressure? Part of what the Bible does is it talks about who we are before Christ. It talks about our old nature, who we are in our humanity. In Colossians 3, the text says this. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn there, actually, because I'd like for us to actually look at this. In Colossians 3, it's in the middle of the New Testament, we have a Bible in your pew or with you, I just would like us to, to uh, take a detour for a moment about how we are constructed, Paul says to the church at Colossae, to respond under pressure. What's our core kind of instincts about how, who we are apart from God? He says in chapter uh, 3, around 5 or 11, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, he says, there's things in you that are earthly, desired for fornication or for sexual, uh, um, um, sexual expression outside of what God has designed. There's a, a default part of us that's for impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. And I'm reading from the new RSV. It may say these things in different ways in your version. Um, he goes on into uh, chapter, in verse 8 and he says, um, you know, the new believers should get rid of these things that are part of our default. Anger, wrath, Malice, slander, abusive language, lying to one another. Um, he uses the image of the old self or old clothes. He goes on and he talks about, uh, in verse 11, he talks uh, there about um, ethnic pride, racial divisiveness. Things that are part of our default humanity, apart from God, having transformed and changed us. But he goes on to say that in Christ, our default settings have actually been changed. Our default settings have actually been transformed. In verse 3, he says, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He references a new identity, a new transformation that's happened to them that gives them a third way. Abraham didn't have, or at least did not choose, a third way. He relied on his instincts. For us on this side of the cross, there actually is a third way that God invites us into. And it's not, it's not our default instincts. In verse 12, we see some of, what, of the, uh, the character or qualities of a person whose default settings have been changed for how they react when life pressurizes them. In verse 12, reading from this version, you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, he says. You have a new identity. You've been chosen. You're holy. You're beloved. He says, close yourself with these new default settings. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. Put on love and peace and thankfulness. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly. When I was in the hospital with my mom and dad, 
the mercy of God came to me and reminded me that I was not only the default settings of my humanity. And it was through the mercy of God that I saw in the intensive care nurses. God got my attention. I thought, what's it like for these mostly women, not all, to come to work every day? They don't know me. I'm completely dependent on them, craving every piece of information I can get from them. They don't know my father. They don't know his accomplishments. They don't know what he's done with his life. They don't know his character. They don't know anything about who he is. All they know is this is a man that's very sick, who's sedated with tubes coming out of every orifice in his body, and they're caring for him. They're caring with expertise. They're caring with sensitivity. They're caring for my mom and I with compassion. And as I thought about what it's like in their world, I, I, I felt like the Lord was saying to me, I am the mercy of God to you through these, these nurses. I'm present with you, and I am acting uh, through them uh, with, as if my, they are my, my very hands. And what that did was it kicked open for me the reality that my default settings have actually been changed. When I asked Jesus to lead my life, he changed my default settings. And to the extent that I've allowed God to form and shape and change me, I can move towards having more of an instinctual response to pressure on the basis of the new default settings that God's given to me. So I made some choices. With a wake-up call from observing these nurses as if God was speaking to me and saying, I'm here in mercy for you. I allowed the Lord to remind me that I'm a new person in Christ. I don't have to, I don't have to act solely on, in response to my human instincts. So I made some, some commitments to myself that each day I would engage God. Some of you, that would be a, a, an instinct that in your, in your, uh, you, it would be natural to you. It, it, ironically, in my life, even as a person who's been following Jesus, in the midst of the pressure, my instinct was to not seek God. It was actually to withdraw and to figure out a plan on my own. Praise God for uh, these nurses and God waking me up. I began to engage God each day personally with a pre-written prayer and a psalm. I did not have every day the words to pray. So I used a book that had pre-written prayers so that God could give me the words to pray and engage him. And on other days, I was able to open my heart to him and to cry out to him. Turning to him was the base instinct that the new person within me, with Jesus as my leader, that I, that I needed most, was simply to engage God in whatever way that looked like. He engaged me, and I began to put uh, hope into the words that I read. I chose to engage my mom and my dad. I held my dad's hand and prayed for him every day when we left the hospital. To see a loved one in that condition, to touch my dad's hand, I, I have no recollection of the last time I had held my dad's hand and caressed it. That felt awkward and uncomfortable. But in the moment, it felt like the instinct that God wanted to put into me as someone who was choosing into the new default settings was to take his hand and to hold it and to caress it caress his head, and to pray for him. The instinct was to engage my mom and to be emotionally present for her. In that setting, my dad probably didn't know that I was there. But who needed me the most was my mom. And so I chose to engage her and to listen. And to listen and to listen. To go out to eat for lunch and to go out to eat for dinner and to listen and listen and listen. And to shift into first gear from a life down the hill in Riverside that seemed like operating in fifth gear. And I sat and I listened. And I didn't go through the motions. I tried to engage and ask questions and be emotionally connected. I tried to not withdraw. And then I chose to look for anything for which to be thankful. Anything to be thankful. Anything that would happen at the hospital, a visit, a phone call, and to say, God, I will choose into thanksgiving. And I chose into patience as well. Well, my dad spent almost four weeks in the ICU and then four weeks in a rehab center. 
He could barely lift his hand to touch his head when he came out of the induced coma. And it took him four weeks to learn to build the muscles to walk again. Today he's home and he he's, uh, has a walker and a cane and he's still quite weak, but he's getting around and he's, uh, he's at home. And that's a lot better than being at a rehab center. So we praise God for that. When we choose to let God lead our lives, he changes our default settings and our instincts for strategy under pressure. It doesn't happen all at once. For Christians, we come alive as new people when God's spirit regenerates us. The scripture says we move from death to life. And with it, the default settings of our character and our mind are transformed and changed. Dallas Willard says, nothing less than life in the steps of Christ is adequate to the human soul. And that's true. Last night, Tim Lincecum, pitcher for the San Francisco Giants, pitched a no-hitter. It's the second no-hitter that was pitched in the major leagues in the last 11 days. It's an incredible achievement and accomplishment. None of us in this room could go out and pitch a no-hitter tonight. Even if we had tremendous capacity and athletic ability, we could not do that. The reason that Tim Lincecum could do that is because he's incredibly gifted and because he's pitched a ton of bullpens. He's pitched a ton of bullpens. He has practiced, and he has developed muscle memory in his body so that when the time comes to pitch, there are instinctive responses that his body brings to what's required of him on the mound. Instinctive responses. And as Christians, that's what God's invitation is for us, to have instinctive responses that are not the default settings of our humanity, but they're the new instinctive responses of men and women who've allowed God to shape and change and transform their lives. And the way that that muscle memory is developed is by spiritual disciplines that are the practice field for life, the life in Christ. And that's the way that default settings uh, change us into men and women who default not to the ways, the things of our humanity and our instincts there, but default to compassion into kindness, into forgiveness, into generosity and thankfulness, into strategies in the midst of pressure that are formed first by calling out to God and not by strategizing of our own means. The Lincecum, it was pitching many, many bullpen sessions. And for us, it might be the disciplines of frugality or secrecy, not telling others what we're doing and not being seen sacrifice or solitude, or it might be the disciplines of worship or of study or service or the discipline of confession or the discipline of submission. But it's these disciplines, much like Tim Lincecum's disciplines of pitching bullpens, that take the new life that God's given us and gives us the new instincts, the new muscle memory, that in the face of pressure and in the face of fear, to choose a new way or a third way to respond. A way that Abraham did not choose. For me today, there's another pressure that I'm facing in my organizational life and the leadership that I give to, uh, as a missionary to the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship ministry that I direct on 40 campuses, college and university campuses across Southern California. I work with a group of 100 campus ministers from Fresno to San Diego to Las Vegas. And right now we're in a pressurized situation. And I feel the pressure of this situation every day. Earlier in the year, the California State University system uh, chose to enact some rules that uh, basically uh, make it uh, not possible for InterVarsity fellowships to be on Cal State campuses. And in fact, eight fellowships on eight Cal State campuses have been derecognized. I think my son Daniel spoke about that if you were here last week. The, the, the rulings that, they've, that have been handed down are such that uh, the InterVarsity students on these, on these campuses have been told that they're, unless they sign a certain document in a certain way that basically says that they'll allow any person, regardless of belief or faith, to take on leadership within that fellowship, they'll be derecognized. And it's our conviction that, that religious criteria is... Uh, a legitimate uh, thing to have for religious leaders of religious groups. But the impact is 
eight campuses now and maybe more out of the 23 Cal States that have, uh, where we've had chapters derecognized. The pressure for the students in those chapters uh, uh, is intense. The fear that comes with uh, being derecognized and not having access uh, creates a pressure for them to respond. And the question is, from a pastoral perspective, how will those students respond? How will the staff that are coming alongside the campus minister helping them, how will they respond? One administrator on one campus said, just sign the document. It doesn't matter that much, and if it, the ruling gets changed, then you can come back and change that later. Student leaders on that campus said, that doesn't make a lot of sense, because that's not really what we believe. Why would we sign something that we don't believe? But other groups have. And other groups have decided that that's acceptable. The students in these fellowships are under pressure um, to, to create pathways and strategies that allow them to have access to the campus. I wrote this to um, these colleagues in May. This is part of my own journey of uh, my default settings kicking in in my organizational life. I've experienced a renewed call to pray, I wrote to these students and to uh, my campus minister colleagues. That's probably because there's a little bit, there's little more than I can do or I would just do it. Obviously, this exposes my unrelenting compulsion towards strategy over and against prayer. So the Lord is forming and shaping me in this process, shaping my default settings. I'm praying for uh, an Uh, a trustee who's acting on our behalf to bring change. I'm praying for his initiative to result in a swift resolution to this and that it's not drawn out. In whatever transpires, I'm reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. And I'm also reminded that the Lord's delight is not in the strength of the horse nor in the pleasure of the speed of a runner, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. By the Lord's grace, um, we have a relationship with a trustee on the Cal State University Board of Trustees. He's actually the vice chair, and he actually lives in Riverside. I've been able to uh, meet with this gentleman, and he's advocated at some level on behalf of me and InterVarsity on campuses across Cal States. And he's arranged for a meeting with the Cal State system-wide chancellor, Timothy White, who was the chancellor at UC Riverside up until last November. He's now the chancellor of the 23-campus Cal State system-wide system. He's arranged for a meeting on July 23rd at 7.30 a.m. in Long Beach with the chancellor of the Cal State system to address this issue. I praise God for uh, the advocacy of this, this uh, man, for the ways the Lord has orchestrated in turning to him relationships such that I could be connected to him and that we could have a pathway to the chancellor to address this issue. I praise God for that, and I praise God for the ways that he has shaped me in the midst of the pressure of this situation. And he's changed some of my default settings, that my instinct to pray would become more, readily, more, more of my ready response and that my turning to God and crying out to him would be something I do at first and not as a last resort. So I invite you to pray with, uh, with me and my colleagues for that meeting next Tuesday, the 23rd at 7.30 a.m. Uh, in Long Beach, and that there might be a new pathway that the Lord would open up that would allow us to see fellowships re-recognized and for um, us to be able to, to say that beliefs really do matter. It really does matter what someone believes. And that in the universe, Cal State system, that beliefs would matter. And that it would be seen as legitimate, that religious criteria would be used by religious clubs to choose their leadership. But for our purposes this morning, as we close, I want to ask this question. What pressurized situations are you facing today? And are you turning to your default settings or are you turning and allowing the, turning to the Lord and allowing the leadership of God, the leadership of God who invites those who have allowed him to come into their lives and to 
begin a work of transformation or what the Bible theology calls sanctification, begin that work. Are you allowing those, uh, the power of God there to change and transform you and allow the, the new default settings that God's given you to shape your response? Where are you feeling pressurized situations? Relationships or your finances or your work? Where is it that you may feel that? And what are the default settings that God's wanting to change for you? I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing, and I want to invite you. So Chad and team, come on up. I want to invite you, if, if you would like prayer for a pressurized situation in which you want the default settings uh, of the new creation that's in you, the new part of you that God's transforming to be what kicks in, to be the thing where muscle memory is being developed in you, I just invite you, if you would like, to come forward so that elders and uh, some of our prayer partners could pray for you. And I want to, I want to um, say two last things. Um, how does this notion of, uh, uh, these, of how our faith acts under pressure relate to our, to our vision statement for our church about, about equipping world changers and being renewed by the Holy Spirit? I think it relates a lot to being renewed by the Holy Spirit. When we allow God when um, we devote ourselves to the disciplines that change, uh, allow us to become new people, um, we become more like Christ. The power of the renewing Holy Spirit in us is, in us is evident to others. And even how we live our lives and respond become a witness to other people. And then lastly, here's a verse that uh, I would suggest on this side of the cross. For Abraham, he didn't have this, these words, but we do. That we carry this in the midst of faith under pressure. That to him who by the power at work within us is able to, abundantly, uh, to accomplish abundantly far more than all we could ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church. We have a God in us that we have, a, we have an eye quotient or an eye factor uh, that we can grab onto. And that eye factor is imagination of what God can do. And the scripture tells it by the, by the power of God in us. God can do far more than we could even imagine. So today as we finish um, our time of worship together, where's the pressurized situations where your faith is under, uh, is under pressure? What is it that you want God to do and where do you need to turn to him so that the default settings in your life that he's put into you can come to the fore? Where do you need uh, hope for God to do something more than you could ask? So as we pray, as we worship, turn to him. Let that be the initial thing that you do, to call on God in a way that Abraham didn't. And come forward for prayer if you would like that as we finish this morning in, in worship. Yeah.